Now on Book TV's Afterwards, former Obama administration national security advisor and U.N. ambassador Susan Rice discusses her life and career in American diplomacy and foreign policy. She's interviewed by New Yorker columnist Robin Wright. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Welcome, Susan Rice, to Afterwards. Thank you so much, Robin. It's great to be with you. Um, it's a fascinating book, both a personal tale and a chronicle of your professional life and through an, a wide array of, of crises and challenges. But let's begin with the current crisis that the United States faces. Uh, as you know, President Trump had a telephone call with the president of uh, Ukraine in July, a whistleblower reported on it in August. It was released in the last week. What do you make of the whistleblower's complaint? What did it tell you? What struck you? Well, Robin, what's so extraordinary about this is that we have now in black and white in the president's own words evidence of the fact that when he's conducting business supposedly on behalf of the United States with foreign leaders, he's actually only conducting his own personal business, in this case, his personal political business. In other instances, it may be something else, financial or what have you. But if you read the transcript of that phone call, not once did the President of the United States raise anything that is of national significance to the United States, nothing about the sovereignty of Ukraine and how it's been violated by Russia's invasion, nothing about sanctions and our effort to continue to hold Russia's feet to the fire, nothing about the need to provide economic and security support to the Ukrainians as a matter of U.S. policy. It's a bizarre conversation. All the president asked for is that Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, do Trump a personal political favor by digging up dirt on his adversaries. In the case of Biden, uh, he asked that you know he look into uh, bogus allegations that have been debunked, uh, alleging that Biden did something wrong as vice president. There's no evidence to that effect. But yet he wants that information, presumably, to try to use it against Biden politically. And then he also asked for even more debunked information uh, that suggests that Ukraine, rather than Russia, was somehow involved in meddling in the 2016 election. <clears throat> it's incredible. And what's most disturbing about it, in addition to it's a clear case of the president putting his own personal interests above the national interest, is that if you read the whistleblower report, you learn that not only did the president do this, but that his team tried to hide the fact that he did it by storing the transcript mm -hmm. of this conversation on a very super secret uh, server. And w let me explain that just for a mm -hmm. second for your audience. When we have presidential phone calls, um, there are note takers who sit in the situation room, usually two or three of them taking real-time verbatim notes. The policy staffers, usually including the National Security Advisor or another senior representative, and the expert staff are also in the room taking notes and advising the president if there's anything he needs to react to. None of that seemed to happen in this case in terms of the experts being in the room. There were note takers, however, doing their normal job. Those notes would normally have been s stored on a classified, secure server. That's always the case. But then there's this separate server that is only for the most sensitive, highly compartmented information that the U.S. government has. I've never even myself seen that server. I received reports from it occasionally that were hand-carried to me in an envelope and then had to be hand-carried back. That's how sensitive the material on that mm -hmm. server is. And yet, somehow, somebody in the White House decided that even though this conversation, which we can now read, was not classified in the least... They hid it, allegedly, on that server to prevent anybody uh, but the most narrow circle from having access to that knowledge. That's deeply disturbing. So why is there no tape recording for those of, uh, who were not alive in 1974? <laughs> well, I don't know the, the historical origins of, of how that decision was made. I mean, I know what you know, because I was alive in 1974, that when, you know, when they had Nixon and, and the Watergate tapes and all of that stuff... Uh, after that, a decision somehow by someone was taken not to actually record presidential phone calls. But they are carefully, meticulously 
recorded in real time by multiple note takers who then make sure that their the, the the final transcript represents their best common uh, take on what was said on both and sides. And so who actually gets the transcripts of these conversations? Uh, do they go to the State Department, intelligence community, embassies abroad? How widely are they distributed? Okay. Normally, and again, I'm speaking from my experience in prior administrations, which I think on a bipartisan basis handled things the same way. I can't speak with certainty about what's happening in the Trump administration. But normally what would happen is that a small group of policy staffers at the NSC, in addition to the National Security Advisor and Deputy National Security Advisor and the Vice President's office, would receive these transcripts on a need-to-know basis, meaning not everybody gets it, not anybody has access to it, but if you have a policy need to know, if you work, for example, with Ukraine, if you worked in the European office and were responsible for Ukraine or Russia, uh, if you worked in the military defense office at the NSC and you needed to know about something related to security assistance, then you would um, in all likelihood receive a copy of that transcript. But that's a small circle in the first instance anyway. And then cabinet-level principals, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, CIA director, de- director of national intelligence, etc. They too, in all likelihood, would receive a personal copy of the transcript, but it would not be widely disseminated within their departments. So, let's talk number. You said a few, and there is a sense that there were enough people who were witness or participated or saw the transcript of that conversation to inform the whistleblower who got the information secondhand, according to his account. Um, so how many people will actually see something that may be considered sensitive? Well, again, I can't be certain how things operate in this administration, in this no, White House. But traditionally. But, you know, traditionally there'd be two to five staffers listening on the call, policy staffers, mm-hmm. plus two to three or four note takers in the situation room. Um, you know, plus or minus on either side. So say max 10 in the immediate, uh, on, you know, having immediate access to the call. And then there might be a slightly larger circle that would receive a rough transcript of the call uh, once it was produced. And as I described, people who had a need to know. So we're, we're not talking about a lot of people. Say, my guess, 10 to 15 on a normal call max. Did the whistleblower do the right thing? Absolutely. Should he or she testify? Well, I I don't know his or her personal circumstances, but I think this is of such a gravity. I mean, just to recall where we are, this is a case where the President of the United States used the leverage of appropriated congressional funds. These are monies that Congress had approved for a national security purpose to protect Ukraine from Russian aggression. $400 $400 million. $400 million in badly needed assistance that the President of the United States held up to use his leverage to squeeze the Ukrainian President to do him a favor that was purely political in nature. That's a very serious thing. And it it is, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to characterize the legality of it, but it's deeply, deeply concerning. And it raises the prospect that we have a President who's most often not doing the nation's business, but doing his own business. Well, the administration will come back and say, look, uh, we're interested in eliminating corruption in Ukraine, which is rampant. It's a long, mm-hmm. long-standing um, bad policy, something that has concerned a lot of administrations. And uh, the administration claims or is interested in finding out whether Vice President Biden and his son were engaged in some kind of manipulation of reality or facts Um, for financial gain, particularly for Hunter Biden. Um, You were actually uh, at the White House at the time. What's your response? Robin, let me take a few minutes to explain. This is completely false. There's no basis to the president's claim that Joe Biden was misusing his office and his interactions with the Ukrainians to benefit his son. So let's back up. The fact of the matter is, every time Vice President Biden engaged with the Ukrainians, including on issues of corruption, he was doing so in support of very transparent, very clearly defined U.S. policy and at the request of President Obama. When when Vice President Biden was pressing 
for the removal of that prosecutor general. That prosecutor general himself was corrupt. He was failing to conduct the appropriate investigations that needed to be conducted. And this wasn't just the United States' view. This wasn't just the Obama administration's view. This was a view shared in Congress. It was a view shared by the International Monetary Fund, which, like us and the Europeans, were providing economic assistance to Ukraine. And it was a view widely shared by the European Union. We were all working together to try to help rid Ukraine of this excessive manifestation of corruption. Because you're right, it's an endemic problem there. So when Vice President Biden was making his push to uh, to have that prosecutor general removed. He was doing so transparently, openly, in support of a defined U.S. policy. He wasn't doing it for personal gain. In fact, the prosecutor general was not even at the time investigating the company that Hunter Biden became a board member of. So there was no ask of the prosecutor general to step off of investigating Hunter Biden. He wasn't investigating Hunter Biden. So this is all a classic case that we see so often, unfortunately, out of this administration, where they try to confuse the American people, deflect, deceive, in order to create a story that doesn't exist. There was nothing improper that I'm aware of, and I think that has been demonstrated anywhere, that Vice President Biden did anything improper. He carried out the policy of the United States. He did it openly and transparently. He talked about it publicly. And the records of his conversations by phone, I can assure you, are not hiding on a secret server that nobody can access. But it is true that Hunter Biden did profit financially off being a member of a Ukrainian company. My understanding, and I, I, have, I understand what's in the public domain, which was in the public domain at the time that he began to serve on the board as well as now, is that he, uh, he became a board member, and as a board member, he received compensation. So, to your book... Uh, it is a, a very interesting personal and professional tale. Uh, and what was really interesting to me at the beginning is your heritage. You have on your mother's side, they were Jamaican immigrants. Um, your grandfather was a janitor, your grandmother a seamstress and a maid, and yet they produced five children who all went to college. Uh, one son became a doctor, one a president of a university, another optometrist, and your mother who went Two to doctors. Radcliffe. <laughs> Two doctors. And your mother who went to Radcliffe. This is a quite, quite extraordinary tale. Um, and on your father's side, they were descendants of slaves. And your father uh, became a renowned economist, um, advisor to the, to the World Bank and on the federal um, board of Federal Reserve. Uh, so... You came from unusual circumstances. Your life, in many ways, is uh, the American dream. I'm interested in your title, Tough Love, um, which it reflects in part on that for all the good things in your life and your extraordinary upbringing, um, there were moments of tough love as well. What were they? Well, Robin, first of all, uh, I'm deeply indebted to my family uh, and my parents on both sides and my grandparents on both sides, who, as you described, really came from nothing and made something quite extraordinary for themselves and their children and instilled the importance of education, of excellence, of service, giving back uh, to your community. However much or however little you have, you have to give back. That was the, the mantra with which I was raised. And, um, you know, whether it's the immigrant side of my family with as you mentioned, Jamaicans who came to Portland, Maine in 1912 with nothing and managed to send all their kids to college and, uh, and see them succeed, or on my father's side. Uh, interestingly, not just the descendants of slaves, but my great-grandfather, who was a slave, uh, fought in the Union Army uh, on, and, uh, during the Civil War. And then after the Civil War, was able to go on and actually achieve a college education. And to start a school in New Jersey that lasted for 70 years and educated generations of African Americans, both to have manual and technical skills uh, to be able to be uh, employed, but also to, to go to college. It was a college prep thing as well. So, again, education, service, commitment on both sides to excellence. Um, but Tough Love, um, the title I selected, is really about how I was raised. Um, it's also how I've tried to raise my kids and, and how I've tried to serve our country. It means in the first instance that 
even though I knew every step of the way that my parents loved me fiercely, they were going to give it to me straight. And when I was screwing up, they were going to tell me. When I was falling short, they were going to tell me. There was no sugarcoating and just, you know, blowing smoke to pump up my ego. They taught me that I could do whatever I set out to do. And that if I did my best, they would be with me no matter what. But if I didn't do my best, if I were slacking off or in some other way uh, not uh, taking my responsibilities seriously, they, they would give me a hard time. Um, I also, as I describe in the book, um, endured with my younger brother their very difficult and bitter divorce, uh, which included violence and a public custody, custody battle and, and very uh, painful challenges for me and my brother from about the time I was seven to the time I was 15 or 16. And, uh, and, and throughout that, I knew that my parents both loved me and my brother very much. They were committed, devoted parents, but they were not suited for each other, and they frankly, in my view, had no business being married. And when they split up, in the manner that they split up, that was another tough experience for me and my brother, and we had no choice but to decide that we were going to persevere and, and, and get back up despite having been knocked down by their experience or stay down, and that wasn't in our culture and upbringing. We had to get back up. And so that was another aspect of, of tough love. And with my own kids, I have a now a 22-year-old son and a 16-year-old daughter. Uh, both great kids could not be more different from one another. And they know, too, that when they're, you know, when mom's uh, around, they're not going to get, they'll get that, that fierce committed love, but they're also going to get it straight. And there's no playing games or getting away with murder in our household. We'll get back to your son later. <laughs> I hope my daughter, too. <laughs> Indeed. So I, one of the things that struck me is um, you're about as tall as I am, and I'm 5'1". How tall are you? 5'3". Five, 5'3". Three. Five, three. And you played point guard in basketball in high school. Really? Yeah. Well, po- first of all, point guard is often the shortest person on the team. Uh, the centers, the Steph forwards Curry. are... Yeah, there are exceptions now, of course, in the NBA. <laughs> but typically, it's somebody who handles the ball, sets up the plays, passes, occasionally drives to the bucket, but most of the time, you know, they're the playmaker. And that was the, the, the position I played in high school and later in graduate school. And I must say, uh, rather mediocre uh, as a player. But what was really striking is later on in the book, you bring point guard back. Explain how point guard came both to be your name. My Secret Service call sign. Yes, right. Code name. But also, in some ways, your philosophy of what you were doing. Right. Um, So it was something that resonated. It was was a... So I I see point guard, and I read about this in the book, as sort of uh, a role analogous to that of national security advisor. The national security advisor is not the person who's, you know, taking the... Uh, the glory shots that's, you know, the, the necessarily the star player who's getting all the, the media. Um, the point guard is the person, uh, and the national security guard, advisor is the person who is behind the scenes more often, um, helping to lead a team to produce as a whole, often passing the ball off to the mm-hmm. star players, whether it's the secretary of state or the president or the vice president or the secretary of defense, to make the public... Uh, impression to, to negotiate the deal, uh, uh, to to do the public signing, whatever it is, but the national security advisor is behind the scenes, leading that principles committee. That's the cabinet level committee that makes recommendations to the president as to how to proceed on the toughest issues. Um, and so I I drew that analogy because I think it, it's. Um, it's a, an apt one. Uh, it's an important role, but it's not the glory position, and it involves making the team try to perform together optimally. So let's go through the various positions you've had in government and the crises you've faced. And the first one, when you were at the National Security Council under President Clinton, you had the twin crises of Somalia and the famous case of Black Hawk Down, which became a movie when 18 servicemen were killed in 1993. And then the twin uh, crisis nearby in Rwanda, where some 800,000 people were killed in a country the size of Vermont. It was just staggering. 
So I'm, I'm interested in, first of all, what you learned about dealing with crises, what you learned about issues of when do you engage, under what circumstances, when there is the slaughter of humankind, and uh, why President Clinton in the end said that this was his greatest regret. Well, the context is I was 28 years old. It was my first job in government. I was, uh, my title was Director for International Organizations and Peacekeeping. Basically, I had the U.N. portfolio on the NSC staff. So I got oversight and insight into um, issues in Africa, issues in Asia, issues in uh, Europe. So in addition to Somalia and Rwanda going on in that period, those are the ones I focus on in the book, but we were also dealing with Bosnia and Haiti and Cambodia, a whole series of, of major challenges in which the United Nations and peacekeepers were involved. Somalia and Rwanda were particularly formative crises in my professional development. In Somalia, uh, Black Hawk Down really was the culmination of uh, the administration's decision to try to uh, go after the warlord Idid, who had killed many uh, Somali civilians and was preventing us from completing the mission of providing humanitarian assistance to people who were starving. That was the original mission that President Bush, in fact, got us into at the end of his administration and that President Clinton carried on. After the tragic shootdown of those helicopters and the loss of those 18 servicemen, including images that people may recall of our servicemen being dragged through the streets of Mogadishu, Congress reacted very swiftly and put enormous pressure on the president to end the involvement in Somalia, uh, in fact, prematurely, before it was arguably responsible to do so. What I learned from that experience was, first of all, the decision-making process at the at Principles Committee, which I, many years later, ended up chairing, needs to be more hands-on in the case where you have American service members deployed. Uh, and you can't leave that to lower-level deputies or a day-to-day interagency process. And that was one thing that uh, was a challenge. The other thing I learned is that when you engage in uh, humanitarian intervention, and President Bush made the decision to go into Somalia for all the right reasons, you got to be very mindful that you're going into a complex society where you may or may not be welcome, where there are political dynamics that we might not fully understand, um, and where it's very hard to separate a purely humanitarian mission from Uh, the security situation and the nation-building challenge. So Somalia was a case of us underestimating the complexity and the risks of an intervention. Rwanda, which came, you know, the the actual uh, start of the genocide in Rwanda happened seven days after the last American service members were required by Congress to leave Somalia. The last thing on anybody's mind in Washington or in Congress or on the editorial pages was that the United States ought to send forces right back into Central Mm -hmm. Africa to a country that people had heard even less of at the time than Somalia. Um, And what I learned from Rwanda, which was a searing, you know, horrific uh, genocide that I some months later saw firsthand. I Mm -hmm. went to Rwanda with the National Security Advisor at the time, uh, Tony Lake, and saw, you know, churchyards just still filled chock-a-block with dead bodies, decomposing. It was one of the most searing experiences I've ever had. But what I learned from that uh, tragedy is what happens when you don't make timely decisions about whether or not to intervene. I'm not sure that American intervention in Rwanda necessarily could have been dispositive because these were killings that were going door to door, people using machetes against one another. And we just learned in Somalia that, you know, the the best fighting force in the world can sometimes be challenged by, you know, warlords riding on top of Toyota vehicles with machine guns mounted on them. But in the case of Rwanda, there was never actually the question called. The decision was never discussed as to whether or not the United States should intervene or support others to intervene or... Uh, the like. And that was because it was, it, it was a, a series of, um, you know, 
individual decisions taken that seem right in the moment. For example, we had to get the Americans out. We had to deal with uh, the question of whether it should be called a genocide. We had to deal with the question of um, uh, whether to shut down hate radio. There was a series of decisions taken, but the, me the mega decision, should the U.S. and or w alone or with others intervene, was never taken. And um, that was a failure of the decision-making process. So from those two experiences... I learned that you got to be engaged. You got to be hands-on. You've got to make a conscious yes or no decision. You can't, you know, uh, allow that to slip away from you. And I think President Clinton's regret, as he's expressed it in public many times, uh, is that we did not intervene. He's uh, said at times that he thinks if we'd send ten thousand, if we had sent ten thousand troops, it might have made a difference. I'm not sure I'm as confident in that conclusion as he is, but I do think that what we should have learned from that experience and I've tried to take with me into my subsequent jobs is we got to have a hands-on active process. And genocide will come back to be a theme later on in other jobs. So from the National Security Council, you went to the State Department to be Assistant Secretary for Africa. And there's a wonderful passage of your book. You're very candid about yourself, which is uh, fascinating. Uh, this is what you wrote. My reputation from the NSC, as I was about to discover, had preceded me. From what I was eventually told by close colleagues, I was perceived as smart, dynamic, decisive, bureaucratically skilled, and tough, but also brash, demanding, impatient, hard-headed, and unafraid of confrontation. Some had also dubbed me imperious, autocratic, micromanaging, and intolerant of dissent. So what, what does that tell us about you? Well, were they right? I, <laughs> or um, what parts were they right about? I think they were right in part about me as a 32-year-old assistant secretary. So I had the extraordinary privilege of, as I mentioned, starting at the NSC staff at 28. By 32, I'd been elevated to be an assistant secretary of state. That meant I was responsible for all of our embassies, all of our ambassadors in 48 sub-Saharan African countries. Uh, I was probably 20 to 30 years younger than the people who the most senior people, the ambassadors who reported to me. They had mostly come up in the career foreign service. They were mostly male, mostly white, uh, and um, saw me, I think, as uh, young for the job, to put it mildly, and arguably not sufficiently experienced given their comparative backgrounds. Um, they knew that I had the skills in, in terms of intellect and capacity and energy, and I had the relationships at the White House and at the top of the State Department to get things done. Um, but I think they were skeptical of me. And the other thing, Robin, I just had my baby, my eldest child, our son. I, when I started at the State Department, he was three months old, and I was a breastfeeding mom. So putting all those things together, I think I was not the typical assistant secretary that many of my colleagues expected. And there's much in the book about the challenge of breastfeeding when you're uh, on the road <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> for interested mothers. Pumping while you're uh, on the road. Pumping, yes. exactly. So um, your first big crisis at the State Department, your biggest crisis arguably, was in 1998 with the uh, al-Qaeda attacks on the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, where there was large loss of American life and local life as well, people who worked for the United States. This, in some ways, was your first experience at personal attacks. Um, not actually really. Well, the Osama files. Later, yes. Explain the Osama files and why you came under criticism. I'm not sure I can explain it. I, I'll, I talk about it in the book, but let, let me... Uh, these are actually two different things, to just put them in context. I really was never attacked for the embassy bombings. Uh, in fact, the Accountability Review Board, right. the State Department appointed uh, board that is set up any time there's a, an attack on U.S. personnel overseas in an embassy or in, in diplomatic service, found nothing wrong with my conduct or uh, uh, or anything of the sort. It was the but, aftermath. No, but this was not about so much the embassy bombings as it was about 9-11. So fast forward almost four years later when 9-11 occurred, and I was at that point a private citizen, uh, was uh, home, you know, in private life, not even really working full-time. And after, two months or three months after 9-11, there was an article published in Vanity Fair that alleged that I, uh, and as well as former Secretary of State 
Madeleine Albright and former National Security Advisor Sandy Berger were in effect responsible for 9-11 because allegedly we were offered intelligence files by the government of Sudan that we refused to accept because of our antipathy for the government of Sudan that had we accepted would have given us information that might have led us to bin Laden. And this, it was a complete fabrication. Well, and the Sudan connection was in the aftermath of the embassy attacks. We struck al-Qaeda. President Clinton struck... In inside, Afghanistan and Sudan. He struck al-Qaeda right. al -Qaeda camp in Afghanistan in retaliation for the embassy bombings. And then in Sudan, he struck a so-called pharmaceutical plant that was, uh, in, according to U.S. intelligence information, associated with chemical weapons production. And had connections to Al-Qaeda. And had Al -Qaeda previous connections to Osama bin Laden. Who had lived in Sudan for many years. Right. right? And that's where all the Sudan connections Well, it's back. sort of kind of, it came, what, what links them together, quite frankly, Robin, is that those people who were behind the false and, I would argue, defamatory uh, Vanity Fair story were frustrated by our policy in the Clinton administration towards Sudan. These were people that thought that Sudan did not belong on the state sponsor of terrorist lists, that we had made a mistake in Clinton administration policy towards Sudan by being so uh, tough on the government of Sudan. So that was the original nexus. So you came back... So that was my first experience yeah. with being in the public spotlight yeah. in a negative way. And how long after even leaving an administration something can come back and haunt you. Um, so uh, you came back into government under the Obama administration, uh, first as U.N. ambassador, uh, and you oversaw several crises there. But I'm curious, a lot of people don't know what the U.N. ambassador does besides vote on resolutions, uh, and you paint a very interesting picture of developing relationships with adversaries, whether it's Vitaly Turkin, who is the ambassador to Russia, or Mohammad Kazai, who is the ambassador to Iran. So what does the U.N. ambassador do? And, and, and explain in terms of some of those curious relationships you developed. Who would have thought that Vitaly Cherkin would end up being a very close associate, even a friend, who visited you after you left the United Nations right. in Washington? Right. Well, the U.N. ambassador role is really a, a fascinating and fun job, I will say quite candidly. It's... In the first instance, you represent the United States to the world. You speak on behalf of the United States, whether in the U.N. Security Council or the General Assembly or before the press corps on important policy issues that uh, the whole world is, is focused on. And so in my tenure, that included things like sanctions on Iran and Libya. It included Syria. It included the, the Palestinian quest for statehood recognition in the United Nations. Um, I could go on and on, but a whole range of... of salient issues. Um, but then behind the scenes, the UN ambassador is engaged in very difficult, sometimes uh, very high stakes negotiations with the other major member states, particularly what we call the permanent five members of the Security Council, those that have veto power. So Russia, China, the United Kingdom, and France, in addition to the United States. And then there are 10 other members of the United Nations Security Council. That's the lawmaking body of the UN and, and of the world. And so many of our most contentious negotiations happened within the Security Council, but particularly with those permanent five uh, ambassadors. And so I negotiated very strong sanctions, for example, on North Korea. And the sanctions that we imposed on Iran in 2010 were as so powerful that they led ultimately uh, Iran to come to the negotiating table, and that's how we ended up with the Iran nuclear deal. Um, it's a very uh, challenging and intense environment, but in order to succeed, you got to relate to these ambassadors as human beings. You can't just treat them as, um, you know, as foils. And so I used to joke, and but it's actually not uh, not inaccurate that when I was UN ambassador. I spent more time with those P5 ambassadors than I did with my husband, uh, who uh, remained in Washington during my tenure. And so that intense relationship, for better or for worse, um, and it wasn't always easy, by the way, with our friends as well as with our adversaries, but that core relationship, those core relationships made all the difference. And so interestingly, uh, I became uh, in, involved in, a, in an intensive, what I call love-hate relationship 
with the Russian ambassador at the time, Vitaly Cherkin. He was very uh, experienced. He'd been there for years before I got there. He knew everybody. He was incredibly charming. He was incredibly obnoxious. Uh, you know, we fought like cats and dogs in public and private. But we also could laugh uproariously and, you know, go out for a drink and, and, and speak some pretty plain truths to each other. And you were involved in a roast of him, and he came, you invited him to give one of your, the speeches yes. at your farewell. So yes. that was very interesting. On the other hand, with the Iranians... Um, that was different. You'd go, you went to visit their, their residence. Um, the FBI even became suspicious of what you were doing. And yet you never acknowledged knowing each other in public. Yeah, so this was, again, 2010, 9, 10, 11-ish, before we had a formal channel to the Iranians that we were able to establish in the context of the nuclear negotiations. There were things that we needed to talk to them about. They had taken Americans hostage. We wanted to get those Americans out. Uh, they um, were bumping uh, heads with us in the, the Persian Gulf uh, with our naval operations. We wanted to make sure that we had a way to deconflict and to defuse a crisis. They were shooting, they were backing militias that were shooting rockets and missiles into our facilities in Iraq. We weren't going to stand for that. So I became, because of the proximity of uh, the U.N. ambassador from the U.S. and the U.N. ambassador from Iran, a private channel at the request of the White House uh, with the Iranians. And so on, you know, on a number of occasions, uh, with the full knowledge and backing of the White House, and, and I would report thoroughly on my conversations, I would meet with the Iranian ambassador in private, and we would discuss these contentious issues, and I would push for our interests being protected and respected um, in a way that we couldn't do through third parties. But it was not known to the public. In, as you mentioned, when we crossed paths in the, in the halls of the United Nations, we acted like we'd never seen each other before. Um, and at one point, early in that, uh, early in the, my engagement with the Iranians, uh, I do think the FBI, which um, is doing its job by making sure that you know they know what's going on with our adversaries in the United States, became suspicious that you know why is the American ambassador talking to the Iranians? They came in uh, and went through the, the proper channels to to ask what was going on, and were assured that it was on the up and up, and so they left me alone. So uh, one of the most contentious developments when you were at the UN was the vote on Libya and the decision when, whether to intervene uh, after the Arab Spring as Gaddafi was moving his forces uh, closer and closer to Benghazi. Uh, you got a resolution, and what was astounding is that the Russians did not use their veto power. They abstained. And the Chinese. And the Chinese, but the Russians being the more important parties because the Chinese often follow the Russian uh, decision. That then began a sequence of events involving Libya that still plays out to this day. Um, it set a precedent also that the, Ru that the Russians became very worried about afterwards because it gave the, the United States or set a precedent for the United States going into or the West, NATO allies going in um, using force against a country where it was beyond their mandate and um, well, here, outside of Europe. Uh, there here's were, the myth. This is a really uh, well-trodden Russian myth. The Russians knew exactly what authority we were getting when we negotiated that resolution. And I made a very plain statement that I reconstruct in, in the book before the Security Council, when I explained that the United States, with our partners, Arab and European, were seeking UN authority to protect civilians uh, who were threatened by Gaddafi and Benghazi. That meant we were going to use air power. It meant we were going to take out not just aircraft, but columns of, uh, of Libyan forces if they were marching uh, on civilian targets. I made clear exactly what we were asking for. The Russians heard it in the Security Council. They also heard it in Moscow. Um, and for reasons that we only can speculate on, um, and I do speculate on them in the book, the Russians didn't block that resolution. Mm -hmm. And I, my speculation is that they actually thought we were going to 
um, get so embroiled in a bad situation that it would be to our detriment and therefore to their benefit. So I say that I think they were trying to give us just enough rope to hang ourselves. Um, But nonetheless, they gave it to us. Mm -hmm. And then we did manage to protect civilians and to protect Benghazi and not face uh, the worst-case scenario. And it did lead to Gaddafi's removal. Um, And the Russians now, in retrospect, like to claim that somehow uh, we exceeded the mandate. That's not true. But it did lead them to be more cautious subsequently, for sure. But Libya also led to probably the most controversial part of your life, and that was a year later, um, Chris Stevens, who was a friend of mine for a very, very long time uh, and had been noble and spending a year in Benghazi during this uprising, providing the United States. He'd gone back as ambassador. He flew into Benghazi, and as we know, he was murdered. Um, And you were put out on the face of five Sunday TV shows as the person to explain... um, what, what happened yeah. and what we knew. And that got you in a lot of trouble. Uh, there were people, um, a lot of Republicans, who felt that you had been engaged in a cover-up of what really happened um, because you had said at the time that this was in the aftermath of a protest at the U.S. Embassy in Cairo um, and that this, at the time, looked like it might have been spontaneous. Um, what's your side of the story? Well, first of all, the, the most important part of uh, all of this is, is where you began. We lost four Americans uh, in a horrific terrorist attack. Um, and Chris Stevens was um, not only a, a colleague, but also uh, a friend that I valued. And, and you know, we all um, feel the enormous weight of that loss to this day. And one of the tragedies, one of the many tragedies about the so-called talking points drama and the the subsequent controversy that I and others got sucked into was that it obscured the important fact that we had lost Americans. We need to figure out how and why and what to do about it in the future. It also soured Washington, as you'll know, Robin, on anything to do with Libya. Mm-hmm. So at a time when American policy might have still had a positive impact in terms of helping Libyan society recover and cohere after Gaddafi, we all walked away. So coming back to my Sunday show appearances, as I describe in the book, first of all, my brilliant uh, late mother, um, who um, I, you know, was this extraordinary force in my life, had warned me not to go on the Sunday shows in a conversation that I describe in detail in the book. She thought it was, uh, she just intuitively thought that it was not going to turn out well. I wasn't looking to go on the Sunday, sh- Sunday shows. In fact, as I say, I was planning to take my children uh, on that Saturday before the Sunday to Ohio State uh, to the football game uh, so they could see their first Big Ten football game. And I kept that promise to my kids. I took them and came back and then uh, the next day went on the Sunday shows. The problem was that I was asked to provide the best current information that our intelligence community had in unclassified form. And I used talking points that had been prepared and screened by the intelligence community. It was the best current information we had. And I knew it to be the best current information we had because I was reading the classified version of it as well in real time. I went on the shows and I explained that this information was preliminary, it could change, but here's what we understood to be the case at the time. And I laid it out. And uh, presumably, uh, predictably, according to my mother, uh, elements of that information ended up changing down the road. And so within 10 days or so, after I went on the Sunday shows, the intelligence community issued a, a statement saying that what they had given me and others in terms of information at that point was their best judgment at the time, but it had changed in certain respects. Long story short, Robin, Uh, After all the investigations had been done, after all the information ultimately came to light, the talking points that I was given were wrong in actually one critical respect, and that is that there was no demonstration outside of our facility in Benghazi. Um, But the point was this was an election year. I was the administration spokesperson. The Republicans decided to attack me as a liar 
uh, and uh, as somebody who was either incompetent or untrustworthy because of the information I provided. And it spiraled into uh, a pretty sustained personal attack on my intelligence and integrity. And it ultimately cost you the job of being Secretary of State. Did you ever feel Well, hold on. I can't know that for sure. And I don't say that in the book. I say what it did do ultimately was cause me to to say to President Obama and say publicly that I don't want to be considered anymore. Mm. So I've always wondered, do you ever feel like you were the sacrificial lamb, that you were not the obvious choice to put on a Sunday show, whether it was the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, whether it was someone from the counterterrorism community, John Brennan, someone else from the National Security Council, you were not the logical choice. Do you feel like you were kind of thrown out there to be the face? I don't. Uh, I know some really? people do. I really don't. I, I think my mother did. I don't. Let, let me explain why I say that. Uh, in the first instance, uh, I know that the administration did ask, and I write about this, uh, Secretary Clinton, if she would go on the shows. Um, they came to me after she declined, and I, I assumed and was led to believe that she declined because she'd had a, you know, incredibly emotional, tiring, exhausting week and didn't want to go out. Um, you know, they could have asked the National Security Advisor, they could have asked other people, but this is the sort of thing that they had asked me to do before, and I had done before. Um, it was also 10 days before the start of the UN General Assembly, and the issues that Sunday were not just about Benghazi. They were about the attacks on our facilities around the world. They were about the upcoming UN General Assembly meeting, and Iran, and uh, uh, and Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel's visit to the UN. So there were a bunch of issues that were beyond Benghazi, which were in my so-called wheelhouse. But what I think was my mistake, and I'm quite candid about it in the book, was, you know, my disposition, my instinct, is when I'm on a team, and the, the, the leader of the team, in this case the White House, asked me to do something, I'm, I typically want to say yes. I, I didn't think that I was incapable of, of doing this job any differently than anybody else. Um, and I said yes. And what I realized subsequently is that maybe the other of my colleagues were keeping their heads down because they understood that often in a crisis situation that is inevitably going to become politicized, that the messenger, not just the message, gets attacked. Yeah. And I learned that the hard way. We have a lot to cover in very limited time now. You went on to the NSC instead of becoming Secretary of State, and you have a, 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 a graphic descri- description of the job. Most days, the job of National Security Advisor seems infinite. Its weight feels like a huge slab of concrete, constantly resting on one's torso, <laughs> your little torso. Fortunately, I could still breathe and function under that pressure, even as m- more and more bricks were piled on top of the original slab. And there were a lot. Let's try to go through them as quickly as we can, because I also want to get to the subject of race in America and the and and some of those issues. Um, Edward Snowden, uh, the WikiLeaks, revealed that the United States had been tapping the leaders of 38 friendly countries, which led to real anger among whether it's the Chancellor of uh, Germany or the President of Brazil. Um, and you write about how for six months you spent mopping up that mess. What damage did it do? Some people look at him as a hero. I view him as a traitor. And and what do you think, first of all, what do you have to do during those six months, and what what is the lasting legacy? Well, without getting into classified information, uh, I say in the book that the Snowden leaks did enormous damage to our national security in ways that the American people will never fully comprehend. Uh, but it cost us the ability to use tools that we needed to use to keep Americans safe. And I think to this day that uh, the costs and consequences endure. Now, uh, what I spent my six months doing after the Snowden leaks was, one, trying to help uh, with other senior colleagues in the administration repair the relationships with our closest partners. Two, to go through a very, very complicated and intensive interagency process where we tried to to look at how we were approaching our use and collection of such intelligence and uh, to make sure that we had the proper safeguards in place. 
and so that was a very involved process that led the president by January of 2014 to issue a whole new set of guidelines as to how we approach um, the collection and dissemination of this information. Um, But I can't overstate how much damage Snowden did, in particular by rushing into Russia's arms where he remains quite uh, smugly. Um, I gather he's got his own book out now, uh, you know, in which he uh, tells his side of the story. From my vantage point, uh, if you're a loyal American, you don't steal secrets and, and give them to an adversary and put them out in public. You mentioned Vladimir Putin and the calls that President Obama had with him. And one of the funniest lines in the book is that no call with Vladimir Putin was short. They usually lasted 90 minutes, and that sometimes he would keep the president waiting just to take the call, during which time President Obama might play Scrabble on his iPad. It was a little bit of insight in the administration. So um, what was Putin, what was the engagement with Putin like? Did you ever feel like we could do business with him? Did you feel that he was constantly undermining him? I mean, you you left at right after discovering um, that the Russians had intervened in the 2016 presidential election. Well, there's no question that Putin personally and his objectives as leader of Russia are antithet- antithetical to our interests. That he, There's nothing uh, that one can say about his objectives that align uh, in any meaningful way now with ours. And the interference in our election is just uh, the most glaring example. Um, There were occasions over the years when we were able to work with the Russians, like on the Iran nuclear deal, um, and uh, and getting uh, a large tranche of chemical weapons removed from Syria. But, you know, you you engage with Putin without trusting him, uh, is my judgment. And, And that's what's so worrying about I think how President Trump has engaged with Putin. He's he's privileged Putin's word over that of our own experts and intelligence community. Um, but the the flip side of that, ironically, um, is that uh, you know phone calls with Putin were not screaming matches. Uh, they were actually quite civil and and involved and respectful, uh, even if they were adversarial in their substance. Um, and then I, of course, had uh, a number of experiences engaging with Putin personally and directly when he was uh, at meetings with or uh, at summits where President Obama was attending. Uh, and I also can attest personally that uh, he's a creep and a lech as it relates to women. Um, and I mentioned this in the book as well, uh, where he uh, had an opportunity at a reception in Normandy, France, on uh, D-Day anniversary, um, and President Obama and I were at this reception in a large room. Obama was across the room. I was, uh, unfortunately, by myself as the only American with Putin and his national security advisor, and uh, um, he made uh, some unwelcome comments about my attractiveness. One thing that's really striking about Putin is how small he is. I, I, w- I was with him uh, in the same hotel lobby in Chile during an APEC conference, and is, I was pushed aside by one of his bodyguards, and I turned around, and there he was, and I could look him in the eye. And I realized this is a man who, I think, has issues. Um, <laughs> well, he's got issues. Whether they are a function of his physique or not, I can't say. So what do you think, what are you worried about in terms of Russian intervention in the 2020 election? Well, first of all, I think it's really important for the American people to understand that it hasn't stopped. This has been constant. They did; uh, they were very actively involved in 2016, as we saw through stealing and hack- hacking and stealing emails from the DNC, from John Podesta and others on the Clinton campaign. They tried to infiltrate our electoral systems. Uh, they put out false information, um, and then they were very active on social media, trying to pit Americans against each other over domestic issues of contention, whether it's race or immigration or guns or what have you. And their whole thing is to discredit our democracy, to cause people in this country to hate one another and turn against one another, and to try to uh, weaken us from within. And they continue to do that every day since 2016, not just in the, the context of every two years of a national election. And so we have every reason to be concerned that they will continue their efforts in 2020 
and intensify them with learning from you know the the holes we've plugged and trying to get around them. And I'm very worried that uh, that Congress um, under uh, Majority Leader McConnell's leadership has not done enough uh, to help us defend uh, against that threat. We have less than five minutes, and I want to get back to your personal story. Um, First of all, your son, Jake, uh, is at your alma alma mater at Stanford. And uh, despite the politics of your family, he has become a Republican, a Trump supporter, pro-life, has taken positions that are in many ways um, very different from yours. What's that like? Well, what's it like? And also, you write about the interesting debates you have within the family. Yeah, well, my husband and I uh, tried to raise our kids to be independent thinkers uh, and to have the courage of their convictions. And unfortunately, we succeeded. (laughs) We have our daughter on the one hand, who is substantially to the left of us, and our son on the other hand, who's substantially to the right of us. Uh, And they're both wonderful kids whom we love deeply. But it makes for some interesting dinner table conversations. And um, they are um, both bright, both engaged in the issues of the day. Um, but with my son in particular, um, there's some pretty stark differences between us. And, you know, that's not easy. But the, the good news is that personally we're very close. Uh, and we talk about these things, sometimes at higher decibel levels than others. But... Um, I respect him, and I think he respects me very much. And uh, I've learned a lot from him because he gives me an insight uh, into the values and the thinking of a huge and important segment of our country. So my last question, and this is getting back to race. You were born three years before the Supreme Court decision on Mildred and Richard Loving. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting that you have grown up in a period where we... We've seen a real consciousness about race relations, but also some real challenges on race relations. You have an interracial marriage as well. And I'm wondering, given what we've gone through recently, whether it's Charlottesville, Parkland, Ferguson, that the, um, the, the shootings by white policemen of African Americans, your reflections, unfortunately, very briefly, on the state of race relations in the United States in the 21st century? Well, I think if you look at the long arc of history, uh, there's been extraordinary progress. My father was born in segregated South Carolina and grew up under Jim Crow and had to fight in a segregated army in World War II as a Tus- at Tuskegee with the airmen. Uh, and he was, you know, deeply wounded by the fact that German POWs were able to eat in restaurants that he couldn't enter. So you, you have to look at the long arc of history. And yes, you know, three years uh, after I was born, only then in 15 or 16 states in this country could I have married my husband. Um, and so I think, you know, we are growing and evolving in a positive direction. Um, but we're also having enormous internal divides and setbacks and there are many people, uh, I think, who, who have great difficulty still in this country with people who look like me. I don't think it's a majority. I think it's a, a, a shrinking minority, but perhaps an increasingly vocal one. And I take no joy in saying I think they've been emboldened uh, and encouraged by much of what they hear out of uh, President Trump, who has given license to those who um, hate through you know, his both sides-ism, for example, on Charlottesville, his mixed messages on anti-Semitism and racism, his attacks on uh, women of color who are members of Congress. I mean, I could go on. But there is a segment still of our society, I hope increasingly small, that still has substantial racial prejudice. And the barriers, the structural barriers, the economic barriers, the social barriers to mobility are still very real for many people who look like me, and not just African-Americans, but Latinos and others. So we have real challenges ahead of us. And we can't declare victory and assume that this challenge of our original sin, so to speak, of race and slavery um, has been wiped away. It hasn't. But what worries me most about this moment 
is rather than working together to try to heal those divisions and understand that we're all human beings and we're in this boat of an, the United States of America together, we have leadership that views it as advantageous to pit us against one another. And that worries me enormously, and I conclude the book with a call for us to come together across our political divisions, as I must do in my own home, um, but we need to do on a national level, um, in order to, to strengthen and save our democracy and, and preserve our global leadership and our national security. Susan Rice, tough love. Good luck with the book tour. Thank you so much, Robin. Thanks for joining us. It's been fun.